Join me in opening up your Bibles again this morning. I love it that we are a church where Bibles are open, where hearts are engaged, minds are engaged, and God teaches us through His Word because we're in the Word. Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews, now chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5, and I'll begin reading in verse 1. Hebrews chapter 5. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also beset by weakness. Because of this, he is required, as for the people, so also for himself, to offer for sins. And no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. Should we bow in prayer today? Father God, we pray you to teach us about your Son, Jesus Christ, our great High Priest. We pray that our confession of him will expand in its content as you teach us from this great book all of the facets of his earthly and heavenly ministry as our great high priest. Bless us in this endeavor, Lord, to in some cases correct false ideas about the ministry of Christ's priesthood and also to expand us in truth, to know a way in which you would like us to know your Son, Jesus Christ, in this role as high priest. Blessed be your name in all the earth this day, and bless us, your, your people, according to your loving kindness and according to your mercy. Remove the impediments to our listening and our hearing and our doing, even the ones that come from our own minds. Settle us right now, Lord, to hear and to preach your word. In Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. Chapter 5 of Hebrews. We're still considering our great high priest, and we will be doing so for a number of chapters. This isn't belaboring the point. This is rather glorifying the person in his role as high priest. But chapter 5 comes to us, in a sense, this is where God is talking to the Hebrews and to all of us believers down through time. And there is a sense in which he is going to be confronting us. It seems that after introducing Jesus to us as the great high priest, all the other priests were high priests, but there's only one great, one, only one MAGA high priest, that this, which is really a sermon, this book of Hebrews is a complete sermon. I use the term sermon because we're familiar with that, and when I use the term rhetoric, perhaps uh, you might switch off or wonder what does he mean by that. 
But even rhetoric had a design. A design in the Greek world to bring across a message, organized purposefully to expand and even continually expand upon the, the first presented precepts as we have in Hebrews. Every time we touch Jesus as high priest, in each chapter it will expand to cover more and more of what Jesus is and does in that role. But it seems that in this sermon, we are now getting, if you will, uh, the heavy end of the stick. Sometimes God brings that. It was an exhortation that Paul made to Timothy when he said these words in Greek, Keruxantan lagan. He said, preach the word. Keruso. You can't even really say Keruso quietly. Keruso. And say it with power and might and assurance. And that's exactly what Hebrews is doing. Hebrews now is preaching to us the truth of the Jesus. Jesus, the great high priest that replaced all other high priests and any need for a priestly representative other than Jesus. It is being preached. But it also seems to be a saying to these Hebrew believers, you're so immature. You're ignorant. There's an ignorance in you, an ignorance to the knowledge of your great high priest. And so that's the reason why I have entitled uh, this message or this series of messages in chapter 5, Deliver Us from Ignorance. We prayed in the Lord's Prayer, Deliver Us from Evil. And it's certain that He will help deliver us from evil if we are delivered from ignorance so that we do not so easily and rapidly step down the path of those who are ignorant, thoughtless, or having inferior knowledge. In verse 2, listen. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant. Skip down to verse 11. Of whom we have much to say and hard to explain, since you've become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God, and you've come to need milk and not solid food. That's our chapter. That is a theme that is carried out through this. Here Jesus, the great high priest, is proclaimed. And it is hopeful, I I pray to your hearts, I hope it is encouraging to you and your minds that God wants you to learn. That is God's goal for you. God is a teacher. That is how his character is expressed to us. Even when Jesus began his ministry, he brought to himself 12 men whom we know as the disciples. In the Greek, the word that we get disciple from is methetes. 
And that is very simply understood in its meaning by this. Learner. To be a disciple of Jesus Christ was to be a learner. To be one who believed in God was one who also believed in the character of God that is expressed as God being our divine teacher, and we are his disciples, his learners. God is the consummate instructor, and we are his pupils. God is the professor in his own higher institute of learning. And he teaches us, and he professes his own revelations, and we are his favored students, for he has condescended to teach us. God is always in the dispensational disposition to deliver us from ignorance and make his people wise according to his word and in the knowledge of his ways. He wants us to know him. And so we might even pray, deliver us from ignorance. Even Jesus, when he came to do the ministry that God had sent him to do, God placed him before the world as a declaration of himself. In John chapter 1 and verse 18, we learn that Jesus was the one who declared God, i.e. he was the exegesis of God on earth, the divine explanation of what God was like. And it was to this Jesus, that all were to come and be taught. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Jesus says, Come to me. Come to me, all you who are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. In verse 29, Jesus goes on to say, Take my yoke upon you, listen, and learn from me. Learn from me, be a learner, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. In the learning of Jesus, there is a form of rest for your soul in knowing truth from error, right and wrong, good and evil, glory and ignobility. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So if you go to Jesus' school, it's the easiest school. But there is a burden to learning, though it is light. It's lighter than staying in the ignorance of sin. In Matthew 28, verse 18, Jesus again came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, therefore Go and make disciples of all nations. Make learners of all nations. Make learners of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and in the name of the Son and in the name of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. Teaching them. Christianity is learning. And if ever a Christian ceases to learn about God, then they are now relegating themselves to a condition of ignorance. 
purposeful ignorance. For learners never get tired of learning. And I know I have many in here who are never tired of learning more from God's Word about God, Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, angels, end times, all the things that are there for us. And yes, even the Proverbs that stick us to the core of our flesh, we're thankful that God again did so. That's a learner. In Luke chapter 10, we read this, a little vignette, a little picture of life with Jesus and a favored family of his, uh, it's the brother of these two women we will read of, he raised from the dead, Lazarus. And so it said, now it happened as they went, he entered a certain village and a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she approached him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore, tell her to help me. <laughs> grew up in a house just like the one I grew up in. Sounds just like they're just like all the rest of us. I'm doing all the work. She's sitting there taking it easy, listening to Jesus talk and leaving all the work for me. Which, you know what? That's true. Surprisingly, Jesus doesn't reprimand Mary. I still have a problem with that. But I shouldn't. Listen. Jesus answered and said to her, verse 41, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things. <laughs> That's just the characteristic of those of us who have lists of things to do. But one thing is needed. He didn't say what you're doing is wrong. He said, one thing is needed. And Mary has chosen that good part. So if you're the doer with the list that get things done, you're also the one that observes the ones that aren't getting enough things done. To the neglect of your learning, this is for you. This one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen that good part, which will not be taken away from her. You know what? I don't know how many times I've cleaned rooms in the house. I've cleaned the garage. I've cleaned the barn. This week I cleaned the chicken house. I'm just saying. That's work. That fine dust. I'm not sure I'm recovered yet. I may die from it. But you know what happens? They keep getting dirty again. But the work on the word that I've done that sticks with me is there. Matter of fact, I have found Christians who've been in the word and love the word of God that even when they get Alzheimer's and dementia, 
when I read to them God's word, something happens. I can talk to them about any other subject and talk to them about their family, things they should know, all the things that should be there, and there's nothing. And I read them the Bible. And I pray with them. And something happens. It sticks with them. I've never seen a case where it's not. I'm not a doctor, nor do I claim to be. I've just been with a lot of people losing their minds and dying. Including my father, who does not know who I am anymore, as far as I can tell. And he can't utter very many words at all anymore. But when we get done praying, he can usually get to amen. You tell me how that works. I'm just saying, that's the work that matters. The others matter some, but this matters more. So if this is preaching in the book of Hebrews, then the writer of Hebrews is a herald. He is the proclaimer. He is the town crier. He is the one crying out to the Hebrews. And he's declaring Jesus Christ to them as their great high priest. The great high priest of God in heaven. And he begins the process of delivering these Hebrews, these Hebrew believers, of their ignorance. Of their ignorance concerning this high priest Jesus, so that they and we like them may come to a complete and mature knowledge of Jesus. Of Jesus' role as high priest and thereby be anchored to a firm faith that will not drift away in time of trouble. Today we're going to look at three preliminary facts concerning every high priest that came before that we may come to understand Jesus and his ministry as well. Today we're going to look at the appointment of a high priest, the ministry of a high priest, and the honor of the high priest. Let's get to it. Chapter 5, verse 1. The first fact concerning the high priests of Israel of old is here. Chapter 5, verse 1, for every high priest, not some, for every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. So the first fact we need to understand is we need to come to an understanding of the high priestly appointment of the high priestly appointment. Notice what's going on here. Back in the days of Israel, the temple, the tabernacle before it, and the ministry of the one high priest, he was taken from among men. The book of Hebrews wants to accentuate the source of the high priest, and that source is from men. Anthropon in the Greek. Anthro, the study of men. Anthropology. This is the study of men. This is not the study of angels. We've already learned that Jesus is higher than the angels in chapter 1, chapter 2. This is the study of men. And every high priest 
came from among men. Taken out, if you will, from the midst of men or chosen out from the midst of the pool of mankind. He's a man. An essential feature of the high priestly ministry is the high priest must be a man like those he serves. Jesus Christ had to be a man, had to come as a man to serve as the great high priest to men. He must be a man. Every high priest, always, every time, were men taken from mankind and particularly from the tribe of Levi. Exodus reminds us of the first taking, for it is God who is doing it. It is a sovereign thing. We read in Exodus 28, verse 1. Now, God says, Take Aaron your brother, saying this to Moses, Take Aaron your brother and his sons with him from among the children of Israel. So they're part of Israel. Now take them out. Take them out from those people. That he, listen, may be, that he may minister, listen, to me, as priest. Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab, Abihu, Eliezer, and Ithamar. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all who are gifted artisans, whom I have filled with the spirit of wisdom, that they may make Aaron's garments. Why? To consecrate him. To set him apart. When one is consecrated, he's set apart for God. That he, listen, may minister to me as priest. Are you hearing the repetition? That he may minister to me as priest. Verse 4 now, Exodus 28. And these are the garments which they shall make, a breastplate, an ephod, a robe, a skillfully woven tunic, a turban, and a sash. So they shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and his sons. Listen, the purpose of making all of these and doing all of this, that he may minister to me, God, as priest. He is taken by God to serve God as priest. It is important that he be a man and taken from men. And so it is that reason, for that reason that the writer of Hebrews has been proclaiming again and again, even in chapter 1, the idea and the knowledge that Jesus was a man. That he came as a man. Even in chapter 1, verse 5, you are my son, today I have begotten you. To be begotten in the sense of men is to having been begotten from a woman as Jesus was from the Virgin Mary. He was from men. But in chapter 2 as well, verse 6, notice, but one testified in a certain place saying, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you take care of him? This is man that he was taken from. You made him a little lower than the angels, yet you crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. That is the characteristic of all men. But then when we skip down to verse 13, or excuse me, verse 9 first, we see that this Jesus 
was made like every other man. But we see Jesus, verse 9, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, which, by the way, can only come to a man of flesh and blood, a man, and not to God, crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. And now verse 13, and again it says, I will put my trust in him. And again, here is Jesus saying, again, here I am and the children whom God has given me. To even have children because he's a son. Verse 14 now, inasmuch then as the children have partaken, listen, of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same that through death, he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. So both in his sacrificial role and in his high priestly role, his humanity is a necessity. He was 100% deity and 100% humanity, bond together in what the theologians call the hypostatic union. What does that mean? It means that God and man together in one. Can you expand on that? Yes, God and man together as one. Okay, let's move on. The high priest was taken from a man, among men, but the high priest was also appointed for men. Hebrews 5, for every high priest, verse 1, taken from among men is appointed, listen, for men. For men. Sometimes it's very crucial that we get the froms and the fours correct. Taken from among men, but appointed for men. Taken in one sense by God's hand and now appointed by God's power. This word appointed. Kathistami. Kathistami. It means to appoint one to administer and office. The way the Greek is formulated here, it means to appoint one to administer an office. An office means to conduct the worship of God, specifically here in chapter 5, verse 1. The way that this is presented to us, if you want the Greek term, a predictive a predicate, excuse me, accusative, it indicates the office to be administered. We find this word used a couple other times just to make my point a little more clear in the book of Luke, chapter 12, verse 13. Then one of the crowds said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. I think that's probably said down through history more than once. Teacher, he says, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And he, Jesus, said to him, Man, who made me a judge or an arbiter over you? Or who appointed me? Who, Kathistami, said this to me? Who made me and put me in this position? I am not in that position to do this for you. No one put me there. It's not my role right now. Will Jesus eventually judge the world? Yes. Did he come to do that when he first came? No. It's not the time for Jesus to sit at judgment. They have 
They have elders and priests who will do that, for he's not yet gone to the cross. Concerning the church and appointments, even to the role of elder, pastor, we read in Titus 1.5 where this word appears again. For this reason, Paul says to Titus, I left you in Crete that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. The appointment for men. In Acts chapter 7, in this glorious sermon that comes right before the death of Stephen, Stephen preaches the history of Israel to Israel before they will rise up and and kill him by stoning for having heard the truth about Jesus. He reminds them of their past. In Acts 7, 9, the patriarchs, becoming envious, sold Joseph into Egypt. Stephen goes on, but God was with him and delivered him out of all his troubles and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Now listen. And he, Pharaoh, made him governor over Egypt and all his house. He gave him an office to hold. So a high priest is taken from among the group of men and he is given an appointment to hold an office for men and God does this thing. So he's taken from men and the key to understanding is this, he's placed back among men to function on their behalf. He's taken out of Israel, given back to Israel to function as a high priest of the line of Aaron, those of the Levites. In Hebrews chapter 8, we find this used specifically of Jesus Christ and high priests. In Hebrews 8, 3, we read, For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this one also have something to offer, this one being Jesus. It's an appointment. But appointment to man or for man, if you will, in things pertaining to God. Things pertaining to God. He's appointed to offer gifts pertaining to God, and then we'll look at appointed to offer sacrifices for sins, all pertaining to God. First, we hear gifts. He's appointed to offer gifts. Even the gifts that men brought to God could not be offered from the man himself to God himself. There was the necessity of a mediator between God and men. And that mediator was, in this case, the high priest or the priestly ministries. So in Israel, if you brought a gift to God, if you brought an offering, which is another name for gifts, or if you brought a free will offering to God, and these were many and varied. I thought about giving you the entire list of the New Testament and then thought about my usual time frame of preaching and thought I'd spare you that. But I'll give you a few. There were grain offerings, first fruit offerings. There were poor offerings of wine made before the Lord. There were bread offerings, there were thank offerings, there were peace offerings. 
All gifts were willing offerings to God. Exodus 29, we read about one, and I chose this one because it's one we don't think about too often. It's called the wave offering. The wave offering. No, I'm not talking about football stadiums. They've just scored a touchdown. Somebody stands up and you do a wave around the stadium. That's not this. But the idea of waving is part of this. In Exodus 29, 22, we read also, God is commanding, you shall take the fat of the ram, the fat tail, the fat that covers the entrails, the fatty lobe attached to the liver, the two kidneys, and the fat on them, the right thigh, for it is a ram of consecration, one loaf of bread, one cake made with oil, and one wafer from the basket of the unleavened bread that is before the Lord. And you shall put all these in the hands of Aaron and in the hands of his sons, and you shall wave them as a wave offering before the Lord. You ask me, Pastor, what did this look like? I'll tell you what I know. It looked like he was waving them before the Lord. I've never seen it. But I know he was supposed to just wave them before the Lord. You shall receive them back from their hands and burn them on the altar as a burnt offering, as a sweet aroma before the Lord. It is an offering made by fire to the Lord. It was a gift to the Lord. Gave it to the priest, the priest waved before the Lord, and the priest gives it back. You'll find that some of the offerings that you gave to God, God gave you part of it back, which also is the evidence of God's grace to man. He could take it all, but he doesn't. But God accepts gifts from men. He welcomes gifts from men. And by the way, when you give an offering here at church, we don't call it a tithe because that is legislated in the law. And if we were actually going to give according to the law, 10% wouldn't be enough. Read your Bible. It would be way closer to 35%. Here we give in the church age a free will offering. Whatever God lays on your heart. It's a gift. And you give it from a heart that desires to give to God, not to man. So there's never an amount dictated other than the amount that you determine in your own heart that week to give. The gift offering. The priest was to offer that gift to God for the men. Secondly, he was appointed to offer sacrifices for sins, remember, pertaining to God. And I wanted to wait to define this word pertaining because it is a really fascinating word. And I think it really functions quite well with our understanding of bringing a sacrifice for sin. What we understand about sin is that sin separates us from God. When we commit a sin, we now lose fellowship with holy God. Adam and Eve, when they sinned in the garden, they themselves ran from God. God did not run from them. Sin separates the man in his ignorance, because now he's fallen into that condition of distrust of God, and he runs from him. It is God that comes after man to bring man back to himself, and even the law of God was designed to bring people to himself 
first his own people Israel, and then all the world through him to come back to him and relate to God because man had been separated from God by sin. And so God designed a methodology to approach him. And our word pertaining to, this word pertaining is so fascinating in the Greek, it means motion towards. So we read again. A high priest is taken from among men, is appointed for men in the things pertaining to God, in the things that move men toward God, that bring them near. God will say, draw near unto me, and I will draw near unto you. It is a drawing them near from this prescription, the direction toward God, unto God, near to God. God wants you near. And so these priests are appointed for that purpose. Any priest that moves you farther away from God is no priest at all. The priest moves you closer to God. His son Jesus Christ fulfills that perfectly, but it was symbolized in the law to Moses and Israel. In Leviticus 4, listen to these words now with that in your mind. Verse 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, If a person sins unintentionally against any of the commandments of the Lord in anything which ought not to be done and does any of them, if the anointed priest bringing guilt, uh, if the anointed priest sins, excuse me, bringing guilt on the people, listen now, then let him offer to the Lord for his sin, which he has sinned, a young bull without blemish as a sin offering. Listen, he shall bring the bull to the door. Thing pertaining to God. Motion toward. Now you bring. You know you, you've got a sin. Now you bring your offering to the door. And, and what is the door? What is this door? The door of the tabernacle of meeting toward God, where man can meet God in the temple before the Lord. He shall bring the bull to the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord, lay his hand on the bull's head, and kill the bull, listen, before the Lord, toward the Lord. Then the anointed priest shall take some of the bull's blood and bring it to the tabernacle of meeting. It's all about coming to God. We kind of get caught up on the bulls and the blood, don't we? And we miss the coming to God. We need to notice the bulls and the blood and the lambs and the blood because those will become symbolic of Christ. But the key is coming to God, toward God. I mean, just think about who your God is, that in his gracious disposition, his, his provision for you, for Israel, for all, was to take a man to work on man's behalf, to bring man back to himself. 
It is God that made all these things. It was God that seeked after Adam and Eve in the garden. And it is God that sought after Israel and sought after the world through Israel, making a place for them to meet with him. It is God who is working through the church of Jesus Christ, the great high priest, and we, his people, to bring people to God. If we aren't a God-word-moving people, then we aren't a group of priests. It is toward God. We've looked at the first fact, now the second fact. A preliminary fact to even understanding the high priest Jesus is the understanding of those priests who have come before. We need to understand not only the appointment of his priestly ministry, but we need to secondly understand, come to an understanding of the high priestly ministry. The high priestly ministry. And this ministry was to be one of compassion. Listen, verse 2, he can have compassion. Why? Because he is a man taken from men, given back to men, for men. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray since he himself is also beset by weakness. You're born a man. You're born weak. You have the weaknesses of humanity. Yet God has provided in that weakness to bring you to himself in a compassionate fashion. His ministry is to be one of compassion. So every high priest taken from among men was to have a ministry that was to be marked by compassion. Metropatheo in the Greek. Metropatheo. Compound word. This word was created in the Western world among the philosophers of the world, among those who taught about things. And it was a word that came in the middle of the Stoics who believed that no emotion should move you whatsoever. To be Stoic under pain means you don't cry out. Also, to be a Stoic when you're eating cherry pie, which is your favorite, is to show no pleasure. That is what they said was wisdom. On the other hand was the licentious na nature of uh, groups of people in the Greek world that were given to the excess of their passions, and those who were given to excess of passion or had great passion were said to have pathos. Great pathos. They're moved by passion and move others around them passionately, but they're ruled by their passion. So on the one side, you have those who will not let any emotion touch them, and the other are so ruled by their emotions that they can't think straight. Metropatheo was designed to keep a proper, proper rein on one's emotions. So as not to be overmoved emotionally, if you will, to keep an even keel. Nor to respond with, uh, or to respond with appropriate emotions without being insensitive, nor hypersensitive. Some of those things. You could say that being the high priest is the cure for bipolar that was free. I just made that up. And it's actually the truth. In Christ, you can have an even keel. 
This is a valuable characteristic, particularly in a high priest, wouldn't it be? Compassion. One that is not swayed too much either way. One who is not so affected by his ministry that he becomes hard-hearted, irritated, or impatient with sinners because of their constant demands for help and their always present weakness. Nor should he become overly sympathetic and become permissive, giving license or being lenient to sin. It must be held in balance. As a man, as a, as a human with weakness, he is able to feel. So a priest may not be insensitive or hypersensitive. He is able to feel and must be able to feel the grief and the pain and the regret for sin without becoming made useless by it or being overwhelmed by his feelings or becoming afraid to apply the appropriate punishment because of those feelings. The high priest was to be the one who can identify compassionately with the sinner, yet not lose perspective as to what the word of God demands of the sinner. Do you see what I'm saying? As a human, he must also avoid being apathetic without any feelings and deliver harsh applications of the law. If you read your Bibles and you know history, that is sadly what the ministry of the high priests often became. For there was a high priest who condemned Jesus to death without compassion because of too much passion. Too much pathos. It is Jesus in Matthew chapter 23. And if you want to read a scathing rebuke of those who are supposed to bring people close to Jesus Christ and move them toward him, we read this. A numerous woes of which I decided not to burden you of too many, but just give you this. For I think it illustrates it best in Matthew 23, 4, Jesus says by way of condemnation of the Pharisees and scribes, he says, for they, scribes and Pharisees, bind heavy burdens hard to bear. And they lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. They make laws even bigger than God's laws, and they make all men do them, but they won't do them themselves. That is not a compassionate high priest. That is not one who's bringing people to God, but actually driving them away with their own supposed self-righteousness. They were hypocrites, which is an oft-used word in Matthew 23. But I want to show you the balance, and only Jesus can balance this true compassion after pronouncing so many woes upon these scribes and Pharisees, this is how chapter 3 of Matthew ends. Verse 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stone those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing.
You are not willing. That is the compassion of God. Even after he pronounces all of these punishments and woes upon the scribes and Pharisees for their hypocrisy, he tells you of how much he wants to draw them into himself unto God. But he does not do it in such a maudlin and oversympathetic way that he neglects to mention their sin. Listen, verse 38. Here's the balance. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That is the compassionate ministry of a high priest that shows you that God wants you to come, but yet says you have to deal with sin God's way. Jesus is the balance for that. Even today we can hear his voice. He still calls sinners to repentance. In Matthew 9, we read this again, Jesus speaking to the Pharisees who were so good at keeping the law but had nothing, knew nothing about the heart of God. He said, but go and learn what this means, Matthew 9, 13. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Sinners to repentance. It is the ministry of Jesus Christ alone that calls sinners to repentance. To move them Godward was the job of every high priest taken from among men to move people to God. It is certain that Jesus is still doing this. Our God wants weak sinners to come to himself through Christ. Through Christ, the high priest. His ministry is one of compassion. There must be compassion in ministry. So there must be compassion from the ministry of God's people to the world. When we look at the world and we see the sin, have we become apathetic? Have we become so hardened to the sin of the world that we've relegated them to their punishment without grace? Isn't it Peter that said that we, we are priests? How are we moving people Godward? Is it compassionately? Nor can we be so simpery and so sympathetic that we do not point out sin where sin needs to be mentioned. I think, I think we've been affected by propaganda. More so than we can even measure right now. Because there are certain topics we just won't talk about even when we're confronted with them to reach out and help somebody who lives that topic. The area of killing children. Are we so hardened to those who have done so? We have no compassion for their weakness, but yet no care for their soul, 
to bring them toward God? And so in the forefront of everything today, the transgender sin of people who are desperately ignorant and going astray. Some of us know. Some of us have been around some people and we know that they would like to believe that they can choose their sexual orientation themselves. Or that they can follow a lifestyle that they've chosen for themselves that is directly against God's word. And we say almost nothing. That's a hard heart. But that's a heart that's even fearing men. What will their reaction be? Well, it'll be a good reaction if you have compassion that's neither swayed too far to sympathy or too far to apathy. That you show them you care for their condition. And it's the same condition we all had and have. Sin. The high priest was to understand their sin. And how is it that Jesus can reach out to them and we can't? We bought the propaganda. We have to become more involved in the people in our lives. And yes, the people in our lives that we know that are going astray. So many of them are scared to death of everything. They're lost. They don't know which end is up. And at least we can show them God's direction and help them come to him. Because it's only through regeneration that a sinful heart can be changed and a new direction found. I think we need to become those who keruksan tan lagan, who preach the word. There needs to be more boldness in us. High priests were to bring them, and then priests were to minister to them. And I pray that we'll have compassion. It's where I'm going to end today. It wasn't where I planned to end today but it must be what we need to hear today. Because I find myself sometimes too apathetic. And I find myself, on the other hand, sometimes overly sympathetic. I don't care at all. Or I care too much. Either way is wrong. We need to have compassion. God wants you to come to him. Repent, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll be saved. Come to him. That's compassion. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word today. Lord, only you can move our hearts, but you do it with your word. We are so struck by the ministry of compassion that you commanded for your high priests. 
But Lord, as well, you've told us to love our neighbor as ourselves. Because we are weak. We can understand their weakness. And we have sinned and we can understand others' sins. And we can be those who bring people to you and let you save them. Let us bring them to Jesus, the great high priest, who has true compassion and has a ministry appointed by you, God, very God. Let us trust in that ministry, for that is our confession. And let us learn of this great high priest in this coming weeks that we might enshrine Jesus in that role as you have prepared it and proffered it to us in your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.